Well, so we uh, on Sunday we we were talking about judgment, and tonight I want to wrap up that sermon on judgment. We're not talking about you know what most people think about when you hear you hear someone saying we're talking about judgment. It's not uh, that's not that sermon. Um, we're we're talking about how we people tend to become judgmental. And on Sunday, just kind of kicked off the idea talking about surveys and how we're always being asked to fill out surveys in the world today, and then how we as people tend to think we could do other people's jobs better than they can, right? You know, we just we look at the we look at what someone else is doing, and we say, "Well, I could do that, and I could do that way better." And we particularly do this with the president. It doesn't matter who the president is. Like, well, I I could do a way better job being president than so and so. And and we just kind of have this this position where we look at what look at the job someone is doing, and we judge their their what we perceive to be ineffectiveness, inefficiencies in their jobs. And then we say, "Well, I could do that. I could do way better. I could be way better than that. Like way better. I'm I'm way I'd be a way better president." Um, one of my kids, one of my kids, not that long ago said that to me. You'd be, you'd be a good president, Daddy. And I, I said, yeah, I think I would be. I would be a good president. <laughs> we, all, we all tend to think we'd, we'd do a better job. And, um, but we talked about, we talked about so a couple of different things with judgment. We talked about kindness a little bit, and we'll get into that a little bit more. But we also talked about shame and how, how we try to use shame to force someone to to control someone to manipulate someone's identity so that they become they do what we want them to do, and shame does have a certain efficiency like shunning. We talked about that with Dwight in the office, and then we talked about slavery. How if we can't get someone through you know some kind of shame to to do what we want to do, then we'll often feel like well well we just got to force them into submission, right? We just got to make them do got to make them do what we want them to do. Well, forced submission is slavery. But we talked about how God never did that to his people. God doesn't ever force us. He never forced the Israelites back in the Old Testament. And all throughout history up until this point right now, God has not forced people into submission. He's giving us the choice. He's letting us choose if we want to do what he wants us to do or not. He's given us the free will. And so we as as humans though we might might say, well, it'd be so much easier if we could just make people do what we want them to do. That's not what it means to be like Christ, right? Christ doesn't take away our autonomy. Christ doesn't take away... Sorry, I've got some some nose hairs tickling my... Not nose hairs, uh, mustache hairs tickling my nose. God doesn't take away our autonomy or our agency. He lets us decide for ourselves if we want to obey or not. So we covered quickly two... Two, uh, and the sermon will be available today in audio format, so you can get both that sermon, and I'll make this uh, this audio available as well uh, this evening, so you'll be able to listen to both of them in podcast form, our 6-8 Church podcast. If you're not, not a subscriber, you can go do that pretty easily. We've also got a couple other great podcasts that uh, you might want to check out. Our girls podcast called Girl on a Hill, new episode will be coming out tomorrow morning. Uh, so check that out. Uh, and then we've got a men's podcast called Man They Remember. And, and I, I think both of them are great, and I encourage you to listen to both of them. But this, our sermon is also out on a separate podcast or teaching podcast, the 6-8 Church podcast. Just look for our, our round 6-8 logo when you search for 6-8 Church. There are a couple of 6-8 churches out there now. 
So just look for our logo. So it'll all be available on those podcasts. So if you want to go get caught up on what we taught about taught on Sunday evening, I'd encourage you to go do that. But we, we finished the evening on Sunday talking about the judgment of God and how God judges, and it's his job to judge, and he should be the judge because he's the only one sitting outside of space-time and has the ability to do that. But we also talked about how God has set up certain offices of judgment. And in the Old Testament, it was Moses, and then Moses set up a whole bunch of judges to judge the people. Then it was the priests, and God used the priests to judge people, and they would bring issues to the priest in town, and the priest would deal with the issues. And now in our society, we have judges and juries that Romans 13 tells us have been established by God because all authorities that exist have been established by God. They're there because God wants them to be there. And that was where we, where we kind of wrapped up. Tonight, we're going to talk about two more areas of judgment when we're looking at judgment biblically and what the Bible teaches about judgment. Of course, the Bible teaches a lot more about judgment than we're going to fit into the one, this one sermon. As, as, you know, as, as much as I'd like to think that I could, cover, I could cover the whole breadth of what the Bible teaches on judgment in just like 20 minutes, it's, it's impossible. There is no way I could cover what the, what the Bible teaches about judgment in, in a very short period of time like that. I wish I could. I wish I was that good of a, both a scholar and a teacher so that I could, so that I could summarize something you know, crazy like that in, in, a, in a short teaching, but I, I'm just not there yet. Maybe someday. Maybe someday I'll get there. But tonight, uh, I'm going to talk about two more categories of judgment, and then, uh, and then we've got some other, other things I want to talk about. So the third category of judgment is judgment within the church. Now, this category might actually be the trickiest category to cover. It might be the hardest one to, to, really, to really talk about without stirring up issues or controversy. And it actually, I started off teaching through, um, I started off teaching about uh, when I was preparing my notes for this one, is just all about judgment within the church and, and all the different things, um, because there are some instances where we're supposed to judge people in the church. But I would say, if it's not your job to judge, don't judge. Because there are some times when you're reading scripture, like when you're reading through 1 Corinthians, where Paul makes it sound like we're supposed to, as the church, judge everyone within the church. But then there are other times, in fact, probably the majority of the times, where we're actually, where judgment is reserved for leaders. Judgment is reserved for the leaders of the church. So which is it? Which one is it we're supposed to do? In high school, I don't remember what, I don't remember the, the, the conversation. I don't really remember what was going on. So back in high school, I was having a conversation with my dad, and I don't remember what the conversation was about. We were probably talking about maybe someone in the youth group and, or someone at church, and I, I made some kind of a judgmental statement about this person. And my dad called me out on it, and he probably quoted from Jesus, you know, probably in the King James, judge not lest you be judged. Didn't Jesus say, judge not lest you be judged? But at that time, I'd heard one of our youth leaders talk about what I was doing, and I felt justified in making this response. I said, well, I'm not judging. I'm just being a spiritual fruit inspector. 
You might have heard that. You might have heard that phrase from time to time. Well, I'm not judging that person. I'm just, I'm just being a fruit inspector, and and we're supposed to judge the fruit of people's lives. We'll say. Have you heard of that? Maybe I don't know if you have. If you haven't, it comes from Matthew seven twenty, where Jesus is talking about true and false prophets. Jesus said, "Thus by their fruit you will recognize them." So he's talking about true prophets and false prophets, and then he says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. By the fruit of their ministry, you will recognize whether they're true or false prophets. Question, was Jesus giving everyone the authority to judge the fruit of other people in these verses? Well, not if you read it in context, right? Not if you, not if you read it. I was, I was, I was violating what Jesus taught because let's read the whole context here. Matthew chapter seven, verse fifteen through twenty. Jesus says, "Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles?" Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Even even looking at false prophets here, Jesus isn't telling us to judge the false prophets. He's not telling us to judge and condemn false prophets. He's telling us that we'll recognize whether they are a true prophet or a false prophet based on their teaching. Jesus' point isn't to condemn the prophet. Jesus' point is is for our benefit to be able to recognize whether or not this is a true or false prophet. That's what Jesus is saying. So is there a place for, for anyone to judge someone's spiritual fruit? Well, not it's not it's not in Jesus' teaching, it's not given carte blanche per- permission to every Christian to judge every Christian spiritual fruit. At least not in the context of what we just read. But are is there a place where, where someone is supposed to judge? Well, if you mean by if you mean by judge, evaluate, then there are some exceptions. For instance, spiritual leaders like pastors, elders, and deacons are to be evaluated before being put into leadership positions. Titus chapter 1, verse 6 and 7 says, An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man um, whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent. So there are some there's some evaluation that's supposed to take place when you put someone into leadership, right? Are they a blameless? Are, is this is this a deacon or elder or pastor? Are they faithful to their wife? Do their children believe? Are their children wild and disobedient? Is this pastor overbearing? Is this pastor elder deacon quick tempered? Is this pastor elder deacon given to drunkenness? Is this pastor elder deacon violent? So there are some criteria there that we're supposed to pay attention to when we're, when we're choosing our spiritual leaders. But in the context of this teaching, who does Paul say has the authority to do this evaluation? Well, initially, 
It's just Paul and Timothy, at least in, the, in this context, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7. It wasn't the whole assembly. Like, the, the whole assembly wasn't supposed to gather together and, and talk about this person and gossip about this person and see if they're a good enough person to hold up to the, to the gossip that was coming. That's not what's supposed to happen. Over time, this would become the role of other elders and deacons, other, other church leaders. But this evaluation was reserved for a select group of people. It was a group of people who were responsible for evaluating someone's ability to be the spiritual leader in the church. And the only real extension beyond the select group is the part about having a good reputation. That would be when, when they would talk to people in the church or in the town to, to figure out the reputation. Did this person, did this man, this pastor, elder, deacon, do they have a good reputation or not? So, so as we look at Scripture, it's not really the job of everyone to be a judge. We, we like judging. We do it a lot, but it's not really our job. So a basic rule for judging would be, if it's not your job to judge, don't judge. If it's not your job to judge, don't judge. These were Jesus' words, right? In Luke chapter 6, verse 37, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. That's what Jesus said. So even within the context of the church, though there are some times when Paul talks about you know, judging people, in like uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 9, we'll get to here in just a minute. He, he mentions that, you know, judging people in the church, but it's in, a, it's in a specific context, which is actually where we're going right now. This is the last category, judgment of people outside the church. Hey, Randy just popped on. How you doing tonight, Randy? Nice to have you. So the fourth category of judgment in Scripture, there's probably more than this, but just as I boiled it down, these are the four categories. The judgment of God... The judgment of judges, people set, God sets up, establishes to be judges. Judgment within the church, how's that supposed to happen? Then there's judgment of people outside the church. Scripturally speaking, this one should be pretty easy. This one should be pretty simple. Like, I should just be able to read basically one verse and make it pretty clear, especially based on what we've already talked about with God being the judge. It should be pretty easy, pretty straightforward. Unfortunately, it's the one I think we're probably worst at as Christians. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul has just commanded the Corinthian church to expel some people. There were so they there were Paul was commanding the church to kick people out of the church because of their sinful behavior. There was egregious sin that was being committed. And right after he told them that he wanted to kick them out, he, he makes it clear. So I'm not, talking, I'm not at all talking about people outside the church. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. I should be able to just read that verse and call it good. I should be able to just read that verse and say, all right, that's, that's it, that's it, that's got it. <laughs> what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? God will judge those outside the church. We are not to judge, as Christians, people outside the church. Yes, there are situations when we need to judge what's happening inside the church. 
Again, I would say if it's not your job to judge, don't judge. If you if you have an issue, if you have a you know, if there is a, a sin that you're seeing being committed, then I'd encourage you to follow Jesus' advice in Matthew chapter 18 and go and talk to that person. And then if that person doesn't repent, then bring an elder probably along with you or, or a pastor or a deacon along with you and have two or three of you confront that person. If that doesn't work, then you're supposed to bring it in front of the whole assembly at that point in time. But we're not supposed to get involved in matters of judgment until it be- until you know repentance is not happening at an extreme level. But it's pretty clear that we're not supposed to judge people outside the church. There's no exception given. Like like you know, we we've talked about some reasons where we're we're supposed to judge within within the church, and 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 the reason for that is to try to keep the church, the body of Christ, holy, righteous, set apart to God. So 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 we're, there are some times when that's supposed to happen. But there are no times when we as Christians are given permission to judge people outside the church. It just there just aren't those times. Unfortunately. We as the church have a pretty bad rap when it comes to judging people outside the church. I would say for decades, if not centuries, we are guilty as the collective church of of heaping judgment and condemnation on unbelievers. We condemn people for not living up to the same standards of Christianity that we often fail to live up to ourselves. Right? We condemn the divorce rate in secular society. And while the divorce rate inside the church is better, it's not much better. Now, here's the, while we're talking about divorce, and I'm not I'm not picking on anyone who's divorced. I'm just that's just a, an example. Um, couples who are actively engaged in their churches, so so couples who actively participate in a regular, ongoing basis with their churches, who are there you know regularly for worship, who serve, those couples are 35% less likely to get divorced than people outside the church. So engaged Christians, people who are engaged in the church and in their faith, are 35% less likely to get divorced compared to those outside the church. At the same time, though, nominal Christians, people who only come to church when it's convenient, who don't get involved in their church, nominal Christians are 20% more likely to, to divorce than people outside the church. So nominal Christians are, are 20% more likely. So, you know, there, there, are, there are standards within Christianity that, that we Christians aren't living up to that we're condemning non-believing Christians for not living up to. We've done a lot of damage to the name of Christ and Christianity by trying to hold non-believers accountable to Christian ethics. Those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ have a gift, right? We, we know this. We have this great gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in all who believe. Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ receives the promised gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift that Jesus promised would come, every believer gets. We all have the, the Spirit living in us, and the Spirit of Christ comes and dwells in us to help us become more like Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 3, And we all, 
who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the Spirit comes and dwells in the hearts of the believers and does this transformational work in us, making us look more like Christ with ever-increasing glory, and it's the Spirit doing this work. right? It's the Spirit that helps us love. It's the Spirit that gives us hope. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. It's the Spirit that teaches us, John 14, 26. And it's the Spirit that empowers us for the mission of God, reaching those outside the kingdom, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We have the Spirit living in us, and yet we as believers who have the resurrection Spirit of Jesus Christ living in us at all times, we fail all the time. Like, we make mistakes all the time. We regularly fall short of what we're supposed to be living up to. Sometimes it's by accident. Other times it's out of sheer rebellion. But we all make mistakes that go against Jesus' manifesto that he laid out in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We fail all the time. We have the Spirit living in us, and we fail all the time. So if we who have the Spirit living in us fail to live up to those standards on a regular basis, how can we even think about judging someone outside the church for failing, living, for failing to live up to standards that we fail to live up to all the time with the help of the Holy Spirit? Am I making my point? Why are we judging people outside the church? Why are we judging people who think differently than us? Why are we judging people who hold different political and ideological points of view than we do? We've spent so much time judging, and we were never supposed to be the judge. That's God's job, and it's the job of people God puts in place to judge. If it's not your job to judge, don't judge. We're quick to judge. We're quick to judge, aren't we? And I know I'm being honest. It's quick to judge. I'm quick to judge. It's easy to judge. It's easy to to judge someone and and condemn someone for something that I see that they're doing wrong. And that's something that, that we do as mortals, right? When we mere mortals who aren't God are quick to pass judgment on other human beings, we're actually bringing judgment on ourselves. Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, we talked about Galatians 2 on Sunday night. In the NIV, it starts off with the word you. But if you get into the more literal translation, it goes something like this. Therefore, you are without excuse, O man, everyone who, who judges. Let me repeat that again because I botched it. More literally, it goes like this. Therefore, you are without excuse, O man, everyone who judges. So the NIV just translated you, but, but there's this significant pause, O man. And the separation actually reminds me of another verse for our church, Micah 6.8, that goes, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And that separation, that pause, He has shown you, O man, is supposed to remind us that we are mortal. We are mortals. In fact, some translations put that word in there. He has shown you, mere mortal, what is good. God, the benevolent judge, the one up, the, 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 the gracious, generous God, the loving God, God has shown us what is good. 
has shown us what, as men, as mankind, as humans, what is good. The same thing happens here in Romans chapter 1. Therefore, you are without excuse, O man, everyone who judges. It sounds like Paul is almost mimicking Micah 6, 8. It's like, it's like he's doing the same thing where he's saying, you're without excuse, mortals. You mortals are without excuse when you judge. Everyone who judges, every mortal who judges, you're without excuse. It seems like a subtle distinction, but it's not. It's, it's a really poignant reminder that we are mortals and God has shown us what is right. Right? We're mortals and God has shown us right and wrong. We're in the, or in the case of the Galatian church. The Galatian member who's judging is a mere mortal. And by judging others, they were bringing judgment on themselves. When we judge as mortals, we're bringing judgment on, our, on ourselves. This is, this is what Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. Now be sure to pay attention to the context of this caution about judging. It's coming right on the heels of Romans 1. If you're not familiar with Romans 1, um, if you didn't realize that, Romans 2 comes right after Romans 1, 1 and then 2. The people in Romans 1 that are being described are depraved. You can read it and you can see the depravity there. And God decided to turn them over to the desires of their hearts. He let them have what they want, what they wanted. They could have it. God turned them over to that. They knew, according to Paul in Romans chapter 1, they knew God's righteous decree, but they chose to disobey them, the decrees, the laws, and they celebrate those who join in their disobedience. The people Paul's talking about in Romans 1 know what's right and wrong, they choose to disobey what's right and wrong, and then they celebrate those who join with them in their disobedience. That's the state of mind that, of the people that are being judged by the Roman church when he's talking about this in Galatians chapter 2. Paul was telling Roman Christians, and what was happening in Rome was just was abominable. Paul was telling Roman Christians not to elevate themselves as judges over the, the Roman pagans, the Roman unbelievers, because they too, as Romans, were guilty of the same things. It's similar to what he taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're mortals, and we're putting ourselves in the position of the immortal. Unfortunately, we're like Jonah. Remember Jonah? Jonah's story? Jonah and the whale, Jonah and the big fish. We see ourselves as righteous and those who are living in rebellion as those who deserve and need God's vengeance. We want God, just like Jonah, we want, we want God to rain down his judgment on the Ninevites. It's what we, we want. God, rain down your judgment. And we don't want to go preach to them. We don't want to go preach God's message to them because ultimately... For being honest, we want them to be judged. We want them to die in judgment. That's why Jonah ran from God and ended up in the belly of the big fish. But after coming to his senses in the guts of this fish and being spewed out onto dry land, Jonah obeyed, and all of Nineveh repents. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. 
Now you would think, you would think, you'd think that, that Jonah would be ecstatic about this, right? I mean, I know I would be. I mean, if I preached the message and a hundred thousand, that's what the, that's what Jonah says, a hundred thousand, like 120,000 people, 120,000 people responded to that message. I mean, I'd go, I'd go berserk. And I tell you what, I would go into early retirement. Like I'd just hang up my hat right there because it's like, it's all going to be downhill from there. Right. I'd be stoked. I'd be excited about it. But, but Jonah, Jonah wasn't. In fact, Jonah, Jonah gets ticked at God. Mom just popped on. Hi, Mom. Instead of being ecstatic about 120,000 people repenting, Jonah gets ticked at God. And in his prayer where he's expressing his indignation for God's mercy to the Ninevites, we see why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, this is just what I thought would happen when I was in my own country. This is why I tried to prevent. This is what I tried to prevent by attempting to escape to Tarshish. Because I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in mercy, and one who relents concerning threatened judgment. So now, Lord, kill me instead, because I would rather die than live. Jonah would rather die than see the Ninevites repent. But does that verse sound familiar there? Now, we're going to have to go all the way back to Sunday evening, so if you weren't paying attention, if you weren't here on Sunday evening, you have to go check that out. But I'm calling back to a verse we talked about on Sunday evening. That verse where it says, I knew that you're gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. That's very similar to what Paul said in Galatians chapter 2. It says, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? It's such a great depiction of the duality of our hearts. On one hand, Jonah thinks he knows better than God, and and he knows what God actually, and he knows what God wants to do to the Ninevites as judge him and destroy him. But on the other hand, Jonah knows God's character well enough that he was fleeing to Tarshish because he didn't want God to show them mercy. It's like Jonah saying, I knew that you wanted to destroy Nineveh, and I knew that you thought they deserved it because of their wickedness. And I also knew that you're gracious and compassionate, that you were going to do what you didn't want to do in the first place by showing them compassion. So that's why I didn't want to go, God. God's kindness is not there to allow us to continue on in our sin and rebellion, but his kindness is there to lead us toward his true nature, which is love. 1 John chapter 4. Well, God's response to Jonah's prayer was, is there, Jonah... Is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah gets even more grumpy when the plant that God sent him to give him shade withers, and God responds by saying, You've been concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hands from their left, and also many animals? 
See, just like Jonah didn't make the plant grow, Jonah did not bring the people of Nineveh into existence. God was their gardener. They existed because God created them. And they, the Ninevites, just like Jonah, were made in God's image. God wanted Jonah to care about the people made in his image more than Jonah cared about the plant that was providing him comfort. But Jonah's more upset about his comfort being destroyed than he is about the people who could have been destroyed. Is it right for us to get so angry when people don't live up to God's standards, so angry that we're willing to condemn them to complete destruction and be unwilling to take God's message of kindness to them instead? Is it right for us to get angry like that? Is it right for us to judge people who have embraced rebellion just because their form of rebellion makes us uncomfortable? Is it right for us to judge people? Is it right for us to condemn people who threaten our way of life, who threaten our comfort? Is it right for us to condemn people just because their way of life is threatening our way of life and our comfort? For nearly our entire existence, we as humans have been flat out rebelling against God and living in sin. According to Paul, we ought to be able to see his order and evidence of existence, whether we've been told about him or not. As Paul said, they fully know God's righteous decree. We know. We all know. All of us know God's righteous decree. We know when we're rebelling against God's creative order. And we do so gladly, giving God the finger, telling God, this is our life, and we'll do with it what we please. Which means God has had to endure millennia's worth of rebellion for thousands upon thousands of years. God has endured our rebellion. We have been rebelling against God, and yet we're still here. Right? We're still here. God has yet to bring that terrifying final destruction on humanity for failing to worship him. Why are we still here? Why hasn't God wiped us rebels off the face of the planet? It's because God is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. And the intention behind this incomprehensible patience toward us is not to give us all the, all the opportunity to sin we want. The intention is to lead us to repentance. If you remember, weeks ago we talked about psychological resistance and how psychological resistance causes us to rebel anytime we feel like our autonomy or freedom is being taken away from us. Case in point, the world right now. <laughs> so attempts to force or, or coerce our participation through shame, forced obedience, or threats of violence only result in more rebellion, like the, the stop smoking campaigns we talked about when we were talking about this before. God knows us better than we know ourselves, Romans 8, 27, and knows that the only way to draw someone out of rebellion is kindness, compassion, patience, and love. So if we want to see people whom we love, who are living in rebellion against God, come out of that rebellion, we won't get them there through judgment and condemnation. We'll only get them there the same way that God got us where we are. Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good, and his love 
endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Even when we've been unfaithful to God, God has always been faithful to us. We have to love them faithfully in all situations. Otherwise, our love is conditional, based on their performance and behavior. That's not how God loves us, right? God doesn't love us based on our performance and behavior. How does God love us? Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God loves us, and that's how we need to love everyone, not just believers, not just people who agree with us. That's how we need to love all people, every single one. So why don't we love it? love people in this way, the way that's been described for us, this unconditional way, this kind way. Well, I think James actually hits the nail on the head in James chapter 4, verse 1. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? What's causing these fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, James says. We want the power to determine right and wrong for our society. We want our party to be in charge because we mistakenly believe they will make the decisions that line up with our framework of right and wrong. But how many times have you been told by a, petition, a p- politician that they will do X, Y, Z if you elect them? And then when they get into office, surprise, surprise, they weren't able to get it done because, well, the other party got in the way. How does that saying go? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me 25 times and you must be a politician. Something like that. Inevitably, some group is not going to get what they want. And when we don't get what we want, like James says, we quarrel and fight. Like a toddler in the supermarket who wants the Twizzlers, we fall to the ground and throw our tantrum. Our tantrums look a little different than that, but that's still what they are. Now, some people have had some problems with some scriptures being in government buildings, but I, th- I think James 4.2 should be inscribed on the floor of the House and Senate. It says, you desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Yeah, it might be nice to have something, you know, aspirational up there, like, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. But let's be honest. Let's, be, let's put the verse on there that's more accurate. <laughs> like, you don't get what you want, so you fight. But did you notice what followed that verse? After quarreling and fighting, says you don't, you do not have because you don't ask God. When you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. Why don't we ask God? Because we want to be God. We want to get the power on our own terms and through our own means. And even if we do ask God, we aren't asking because we want God to be glorified. We're asking because we want to use God's omnipotence to our own advantage. We want to use our status with God as as Christians to get what we want from God. 
That's what James is saying. Like you're asking with wrong motives. Do you remember the election of 2020 two years ago? <laughs> of course you do. Like, even if like it's it's so it's probably so deeply etched into your memory that even if at night you're having a dream and like you're shooting off in this rocket to go up into space and and you're like you're going off you know and having this crazy experience and then there's headlines about you know people going into space and you're supposed to be in the headlines probably still when you read that paper the headlines of the paper in your dreams are still talking about the 2020 election because it was probably so traumatizing for everybody it's just going to be permanently etched into our memory well one thing i remember about that election is there were so many people praying and prophesying that their candidate was going to win on both sides. Both sides. There were people saying that, that President Trump was going to get reelected, and there were people that were saying that now President Biden was going to get elected as president. They were prophesying their candidate was going to win. But so many of them were doing it with wrong motives. I think they believed their motives were pure, we all, we all believe our motives are pure. We all believe that our way of life is the best way for the nation. And if people would just do things our way, well, everyone would be better off. We all believe that. But are we truly, honestly concerned with the right things? Are we praying for God's actual will to be done? Or have we already deemed what his will should be? Like, are we wanting to help bring God's kingdom to earth as it is in heaven so that we as a society may flourish? Or do we just, do we really just want to get our way? And what about all those prophets, by the way, who got it wrong in 2020? What are we supposed to do with them? Well, James doesn't stop there. He says, you adulterous people. James, James didn't pull any punches, right? He didn't beat around the bush. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. The world fights to get its own way. But that's not how things work in the kingdom of God. Right? The Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The world is fighting, get, fighting to get its own way, but the kingdom of God is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we're fighting to get our way to the extreme of judging and condemning those who stand in our way, we have to ask ourselves, are we more intimate with the world? Are we more intimate with the party we believe in than we are with God? question that we can ask ourselves to figure that out is, if God asked us to deny the party that we are a part of, would we deny the party? All right, what's our job in? we gotta, we got to cruise here and wrap this up. If it's not our job to judge and condemn the world, what is our job? Well, I've got a few ideas. Number one, focus on how you live your life. Focus on how you live. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Focus on how you live your life. There's almost no doubt that this phrase was inspired by Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. 
Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Not that they may hear your preaching, not that they may hear your judgment and condemnation, but that your light would shine and your shining light would be the good deeds. Now, hold on, hold on a second. Are you saying we're never supposed to preach the gospel? Is that what you're telling me, man? I thought I was supposed to preach the gospel. I mean, the gospel, the gospel's offensive, right? And I can't help it if people get offended by the gospel. I'm not saying we should never preach the gospel. We're clearly told to preach the message of the gospel. We're supposed to preach it audibly. We're supposed to preach Jesus, him crucified, resurrected from the dead, ascended to the Father, sending the Holy Spirit, establishing the church, and awaiting the resurrection, the eternal resurrection. We're supposed to preach that message, yes. But the larger emphasis in Jesus' teaching was on living the life of the gospel, first and foremost. That's what Jesus taught. The majority of what Jesus taught was about living the life that shines. The light that shines is the way that we're supposed to live. The life we live is the life that shines. What light are we shining? We, we aren't a light because of the words we preach. We're a light because of our good deeds. So do we live such good lives among the unbelievers that even when we're accused of doing wrong, the words of our accusers are meaningless? Right? Like, what, are, are we living such good lives among the pagans that if someone were to throw an accusation your way, people would say, that's absurd. Right? There's no way Randy would do that. That's absurd. There's no, you're, there is no, you're accusing Vanjie of just doing something that is insane. There's just no way that what you're saying is going to add up. Are we living such good lives that these accusations are meaningless? Number two, first one is focus on how you live your life. Number two, don't judge. <laughs> Seems really general and generic, but let's take our cue from Jesus in Matthew chapter seven. Don't judge so that you will not be judged. For by the standard you judge, you will be judged. And the measure you use will be the measure you receive. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye but fail to see the beam of wood in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye while there's a beam in your own eye, you hypocrite? First remove the beam from your own eye and then you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dogs or throw your pearls before pigs, otherwise they will trample them under their feet and turn around and tear you to pieces. Jesus isn't pulling any punches either. He's pretty straightforward. Don't judge so that you won't be judged. The way we judge others will be the same way that we're judged. If that's not clear enough, Jesus gives us this parable to help illustrate the point. Don't go over to someone and point out that tiny little speck in their eye when you've got a full-on six-by-six beam sticking out of your own eye. Get the beam out of your own eye first. Kind of sounds like the first point. Isn't it interesting that Jesus then goes into this pearls before swine illustration? I'd never noticed this before, but, but I wonder if, if there's a point where he, why, why he does that. If he goes here on intentionally, of course there's a point because it's Jesus. He's saying it on purpose. 
I wonder if when we don't focus on the lives we're living and the kind of light we're shining before we preach the message of the gospel, if we're throwing the message of the gospel out to be trampled instead of being received, because we haven't prepared people to be open to receiving the gospel with the good deeds of our lives. I could preach on that for a while, but I don't have time. Are we living lives that are preparing people to receive the gospel, or are we living lives that are shutting people off to the gospel so that it's like throwing pearls before swine? Number three, humble ourselves. There's some overlap here, but there's enough nuance that I thought they should be distinct. Luke chapter 18, verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. And he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That beating of your breast was a sign of, of repentance, of remorse like deep pain that you've caused with your sin. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Tax collectors were reviled by society. They were the butt of the jokes. The jokes we make about politicians would be the kind of jokes that were made about tax collectors. Like Samuel Clemens said, If progress means to move forward, then what does Congress mean? Right? Like politicians, tax collectors were easy to judge. And it was common for people like Pharisees to compare themselves to tax collectors, which seems obvious, right? I mean, if you want to make yourself look like a saint, compare yourself to Hitler. (laughs) Everyone looks like a saint compared to Hitler. But Jesus was making it clear. Only one of those people went home justified before God, and it wasn't the righteous one, right? By, by, by outside standards, the Pharisee would have been the righteous one. But Jesus says he didn't go home justified. It was the tax collector. It was the sinner who humbled himself. When we think we're living righteous lives, the temptation is always there to compare ourselves to those whom we perceive to be sinners, in order to justify our position. We likely feel some sense of conviction in our spirit because we know the shadows of our hearts where there is still some work to be done. But either because we like the shadows, we don't have the desire to work on them, or we've tried to work on them and failed, it's easier to justify those shadows away by comparing our darkness to someone else's darker darkness. But here's the thing. God doesn't judge us in comparison to other humans. He judges us compared to his one and only son. And only the people who have humbled themselves and become, become obedient to death in the same way that Jesus did, Romans 6 verse 5, Philippians 2 verse 8, only people who become obedient to death the same way Jesus did, only people who have entered the new and living way, the veil that is Jesus' flesh torn on the cross, Only those who have crawled into the death of Christ can receive his life. So we have to humble ourselves. Fourth, if it's not your job to judge, don't judge. The Hebrew word for judge is shafat. It means to judge, govern, vindicate, or punish, to act as a lawgiver. 
governor, execute judgment. This seems to get more to the reality of judgment of our time. When we judge others for having different beliefs than ourselves, we aren't usually just critiquing their point of view, saying, hey, we have some differences of opinion here. We actually seek to elevate our position and act as the lawgiver or judge and punish them for their incorrect beliefs and, if necessary, vindicate ourselves for the way their beliefs have offended or contradicted our own point of view. Our judgment is to put them in their place and make ourselves feel better for the way their point of view has offended us. Now, as we've said before, there's a need for judgment, and those who have the responsibility of judging should judge. But we've become an entire society of judges and juries. We don't even realize it, but we've brought in the temptation of the serpent in the garden into everyday life. He wasn't just tempting us with the ability to determine what is good and evil for ourselves. He was tempting us with the belief that we would be able to determine what is good and evil for everyone. That was the temptation. It doesn't take a genius to see where the problems could arise in that scenario. <laughs> like if I'm a judge and I'm able to determine what is good and evil, and you're also a judge, and you're also able to determine what is good and evil, and if my good and evil and your good and evil uh, are different, well, it seems safe to say we're going to have a problem. <laughs> if what's good for me is poking you with a hot iron from the fire, then uh, you have to be okay with that. And I'm the judge, and I get to decide that that's good. But if you're the judge and you're not okay with that, then I have to be okay with you're not being okay with that. Without our willingness to surrender to a higher absolute truth, there is no longer any overarching criteria by which our society can function, which is where we are right now as a society. We're still being tempted all the time by the serpent to this day with something that doesn't belong to us, judgment. It's something that wasn't meant for us, but we still want the power to judge and condemn. Not only do we want the power to determine what is right and wrong, we want the authority to enforce what is right and wrong on the lives of other people. And when someone violates what we believe to be right and wrong, we believe it's within our right to make the violators pay. Because for us, judgment also comes with the power to condemn. Yes, there is an actual right and wrong determined by God that forms the very foundations of earth itself. But just like God would not use his power over the Israelites... Right, The power that he'd shown them with the signs and wonders that he performed to set them free from the slavery of Pharaoh. God would not use that power to force the Israelites into choosing to worship him alone. We cannot try to use our power as image shapers to try to manipulate others into our own way of thinking. Lastly, don't condemn and don't condone. We've made a case for not condemning those who stand condemned already. That's God's job. He'll determine the condition of their hearts and belief about his son. That's not for us to do. But we also can't condone rebellious behaviors. There's a strong urge in society today to do just that. And it's hard not to give in to that urge. People's identities have become so entangled with the actions of rebellion that we're no longer able to distinguish between who someone is and what someone does. It's difficult. But as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, what fellowship can light have with the darkness? A hugely undertaught element of the nature of God today is his holiness. God is holy. He's set apart. There is no one like him. 
There is no sin in God. There is no darkness in God, only light. Nor was or is there any sin in Jesus. John makes it pretty clear that it's impossible for us to embrace rebellion against God and be in Christ. He says everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Well, what does that have to do with condoning sin? The pressure today is to condone the sin we each have embraced. Because those sins have become so intertwined with our identities, we just can't let them go. We aren't a person who does that sin. We are that sin. So instead of risking saying anything risky about the sin, we feel the pressure to condone someone's specific sin in the hopes that we can keep them around, keep them close. It's not our job to condemn. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to convict people of sin. And from my experience, the Holy Spirit knows how and when and when to convict someone of sin far better than I do. He knows their heart. He knows if they're open to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and he knows if they're ready to respond to it. I don't know that. I can't know that. Now, as much as I might like to jump right to the issue that I, th- that I see in that person's life, which I think is sin, the speck in their eye, I don't know if they're ready to take it out yet. And that's assuming that I've already successfully removed the six by six from my own eye. We have to balance ourselves then between condemning people for their rebellion and condoning that rebellion. And at times it feels like a tightrope the size of dental floss stretched over a volcano with hurricane force winds. Oh, and someone is shaking the tightrope and we've just walked through some goose grease just before we got on the rope. That's what it feels like. Well, what do we do when someone is pressuring us to condone something we know to be lawlessness? It could be gracious and kind. We, we talk to the person. We treat the person as a person made in the image of God. We're gracious and ridiculously kind. We ask them what they believe. We ask them why they believe. We ask them their story about how they got to that point. We treat them with dignity and respect. And if they ask me directly what I believe, well, I might say something like this. I believe that Scripture teaches that this behavior goes against God's design for human thriving and and that it goes against God's plan to practice it. But that will be up to God to decide. It doesn't change the fact, though, that I love you without conditions. That's something similar to what I would say, probably. That might be a problem for that person. They, might, they, they may not want to have anything to do with me at that point. But that doesn't mean we have to stop loving them. Just like God, the benevolent God, who's always there loving us without condition, has never stopped loving us, even through all of those years when we were living in rebellion, we don't have to stop loving someone just because they want to be done with us. And I believe, even though it may take a long time, If we keep loving them, keep showing up for them, keep accepting them without condition, not requiring them to change before we accept them, I think they'll open back up to us. 
And that's the thing. God doesn't require anything of us before extending his love to us. He doesn't. He extends his love to us while we are still sinners. While we were still powerless to do anything about our sin, Christ died for us. God reconciled us while we were his enemies. The act of reconciliation of Jesus dying on the cross happened while we were still enemies of God. He didn't wait for us to become his friends. He sent reconciliation to us through Jesus before we could do anything to earn or deserve his reconciliation. That's how God works. If that's how God works, if that's how Jesus came to us from the Father, and if becoming a disciple of Christ means becoming like Christ, then we have to learn how to work that way as well. That has to be how we love others. We have to extend God's love to anyone and everyone before they could do anything to deserve or earn it. If that's how Jesus came to us, that also must be what he had in mind when he sent us out. Well, that does it. That wraps up that sermon. Hard to believe how long it was. But um, we're going to move on from judgment, and this coming Sunday we're going to talk about idols. (laughs) Another fun topic, another lighthearted topic. We're going to talk about anti-tribes and idols and uh, you know, kind of how we're showing our loyalty to our anti-tribes instead of to God's kingdom first. Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, but we're, we're tending to show our loyalty to uh, these anti-tribes, and we'll explain what that means this coming Sunday night at 5 p.m. We, p.m. We'd love to have you, absolutely love to have you join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. for dinner and then our service. Don't forget to check out our podcast, the Sermon Podcast, 6A Church, the Girl on a Hill Podcast, Man They Remember Podcast as well. Let me pray for us and we're done. Father, thank you for your generous grace. Thank you for your your unconditional love for us that was extended to us in Jesus before we could do anything to earn it. I pray, Father, that you would help us as your followers to live more in that love, to extend love, to be the first to love to be the first to show love even when it's hard, even when it feels conflicting, to be those who do not condemn the world around us for not living up to the standards that we fail to live up to ourselves, but instead extend the love of Jesus Christ into that world, live the light, live out the light, live a life that shines by the good deeds that we do, by the kindness that we show, and pray that through those things people would be drawn out of the darkness and into the light of Jesus Christ. We ask, Father, that you help us to live those kinds of lives. Reveal to us any area of our heart that still has shadows. Light it up with your love and, and, and replace it with your truth. Help us now, Father, as we go about our week to live a life that shines, to do good deeds that shine, to be non-judgmental people, to not condemn the world around us, and to show, to show the love of Christ long before anyone could do anything to earn it. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>